Hi friends, Rob Bell here and welcome to Robcast number two. First off, I just want to say a big shout out, love, and thank you to all of you who listened in to Robcast number one and gave all that extraordinary feedback and helped things start with a bang. Wow, wow, wow. Today, this Robcast is called The River, The Mountain, and You. But before we get um, to today's topic, uh, a couple things real quickly. I'm doing an event with Richard Rohr, and if you want to hear him roar, um, check out uh, the details at my website. More info on that. The event's in March, and it's Richard and I sitting on stools, taking people through some content that we're very excited about. So uh, my event with Richard Rohr, early March. couple spots are still left. All that info, robbell.com. Um, secondly, if you have questions, because there's all kinds of stuff to talk about, let's be honest. Um, questions at robbell.com, and in future Robcasts, we'll be exploring some of your questions together. And there's also the chance that Kristen Bell will join me in a future Robcast, and we'll talk about the zim-zum of love, love, marriage, relationships, all that kind of thing. And so if you have specific zim-zum questions, how do you stay together, how do you stay inspired, how do you fight well, all that kind of marriage, love, relationship uh, stuff, send those to questions at robbell.com as well. And then one more thing, this summer we made uh, something like 33 short films. We made this whole e-course, like an online class called Finding Joy and meaning in everyday life. And it's quotes and uh, discussion questions and group exercises. It's this giant class to help you uh, find more in the everyday slog of life. And you can find that course at uh, oprah.com backslash Rob Bell and just keep hunting e-course, finding joy and meaning, and uh, you'll find it there. And of course, lots of other things to talk about. But today, I want to talk about the river the mountain, and you. I once uh, went and talked with this very wise man because nothing made sense anymore. I had this spinning sort of turbulent sense that, that the way in which I was navigating the world wasn't working and I needed help. And I'll never forget talking to this man. And, and I said something like, you know, I just don't even know what that means anymore. And he said to me, Rob, there's a truth here. And it's important for you to embrace it. And then he gave me this quote. But what was interesting, I found out later, is this quote that he gave me was actually a quote of another wise man. But the quote was this. At first, the river is a river. And the mountain is a mountain. And then the river is no longer a river. And the mountain is no longer a mountain. And then later, the river is a river again, and the mountain is a mountain again. So what I wanna do is first talk about what happens when the river is a river and the mountain's a mountain. Then we're gonna talk about what happens when the river is no longer a river and the mountain is no longer a mountain. And then I'm gonna talk about what happens later after that when the river is a river again and the mountain is a mountain again. At first, the river is a river and the mountain is a mountain. Now, we're all given a worldview. We're given a lens, a guide, doctrine, dogma, perspective, a way to navigate the world. Maybe it's parents, teachers, mentors, authority figures, your boss, colleagues, friends, religious leaders. We're given this way of seeing the world. So whether it's education or business or politics or career or love or 
how to be a parent or spirituality, whatever it is, we're given this way of, of understanding the world and it's how we navigate the world. This word means this and that word means that. And this word corresponds to the reality I've experienced and that concept and that phrase line up and resonate with me with how I experience things. And so that's how we navigate life. It works until it doesn't until the river is no longer a river and the mountain is no longer a mountain. Things don't mean what they used to. We sometimes say, I just don't know anything. Or somebody will use a word and we'll just say, I have no idea what you mean by that. Or we'll hear a phrase and we'll think, I used to know what that was, but now I feel like it makes no sense anymore. I can't do it like that anymore. I don't see it like that anymore. I don't believe that like I used to. And we'll often simply say, what does that even mean? Sometimes the river is no longer a river and the mountain is no longer a mountain because of tragedy. I remember a number of years ago, a man came to see me and he told me this fascinating story, heartbreaking story, actually. He said, he said I am a global leader in this particular movement that teaches people how to make their churches big. And so he said, what I do is I go around the world and I train people with the basic premise that if you do this and then you do this, I think he had three or four steps or something. If you do this and then do this and then do this, then God will grow your church. And he said, I'm really good at it. And I go all over the place and we have employees and curriculum and notebooks and books. And he's like, I'm very good at this. I teach people this understanding of how to make your church bigger. But he says, Last year, my young daughter, and I think I want to say she was like seven or eight, he says she got really sick, got a real rare illness, and she died. And he says we prayed and we did everything we could and we got her all the best medical care and she died. And he says, I'm realizing now that when she died, that understanding of God for me died as well. The God who, if you do A and then you do B, then God is guaranteed to show up and do C. So he says it wasn't just her death. It was a death of a whole understanding of who God is. The river is no longer a river. And the mountain is no longer a mountain. Sometimes it's tragedy. Sometimes it's simply travel. It's new experiences. And sometimes it's going thousands of miles away, it's geographic, and sometimes it's simply reading a new book. And all of a sudden you're exposed to a new idea, a new thought, a new viewpoint. Maybe it's this person from the other side of the world moved into the apartment next door, and all of a sudden this person that fit nicely in a, a category or label is suddenly your neighbor, and as you're getting to know them, you're realizing, wow, I was taught a whole system of categories and labels that don't work and they aren't even true. So sometimes you traveled thousands of miles, but sometimes you just went next door and you realized, wait, things are way, way different than I was taught. They aren't as black and white. They're a little more ambiguous. They're a little more interesting. It's like I was taught black and white and now I'm seeing color. There is paradox. There is surprise. I was taught that these are the good guys and these are the bad guys, but I met some of the bad guys and they're quite good. And I'm realizing some of the people who said they're the good guys have some really destructive tendencies. And he does sound familiar. Sometimes it's tragedy. Sometimes it's travel. Sometimes it's interesting things like technology. Like imagine 
if, uh, let's say, mid-1400s, was a printing press, 1420s, what if 15 years after the printing press had been invented, you and I were talking and I said to you, hey, this books thing, I think it really might catch on. <laughs> you would, that's funny, by the way, you, you and I laugh now because, yes, that printing press books thing did catch on. And when people realized you could take ideas and you could bind them in a single volume and you could fit it in your pocket, all of a sudden ideas traveled. And this one invention, the printing press and the books that came out of it, it turned everything upside down from government to power to the academy to philosophy to religion to the way people understood themselves in the modern world. I mean, it turned everything upside down. We are now roughly 15 years into the internet. So you and I saying to each other, hey, the internet, it's really changed things. We may be only whiffing the first fumes of massive, massive change that we couldn't even begin to understand. There's this fantastic historian writer, Phyllis Tickle, who has a book called The Great Emergence, where she outlines essentially a 500-year cyclical view of history in the sense that Every 500 years, we seem to have a new invention, and that new technology disrupts on a massive level. It brings all of this progress, and it also turns everything upside down, and it generally asks a number of questions about what it means to be human. And the subsequent 500 years are then shaped by how we answer some of these particular questions the disruption raises. And so the premise of her book is simply is that the printing press inaugurated one of these incredibly tumultuous historic periods and that we right now are in the midst of another one. And what that means, which I'm sure you have thousands of examples of this, is that lots and lots of us are asking in lots of different areas of life what does that even mean? What does that look like? The rivers are no longer rivers and the mountains are no longer mountains. So it may be at a very deep personal level, you simply went away to university and you left home and your mind got blown and a bunch of things that you grew up with don't work like they used to. Or maybe you traveled or maybe you got a new job and because of your job, you got exposed to a whole new world. And now some of those simple categories just don't work like they used to. So everything from the very real personal journeys we're each on to the sort of mega historic shifts, the truth is sometimes you have to throw it all up in the air. Think about business. And for many people in um, previous eras, business was make a good product and sell it. That's what matters. And then make money. Are you making money with a good product? Great. But now people are asking, yes, but what are the working conditions like for your factory workers? And people are asking questions like, what is the carbon footprint? What is the effect of your business on the environment? And all of a sudden, our people are saying, what does it even mean to do business in the new world we find ourselves in? And what does it mean to be good? Or think about the Middle East. Think about Israel and Palestine and how many people were raised in America with a particular narrative that said, those are the good guys, those are the bad guys. But then you traveled and you visited that soil and you realized, wait, Some of the things going on here are the good guys are actually the oppressors and who the people I taught were the bad guys actually have a point. 
and you realize, wait, this, there is some profound injustice here. Or maybe it's education, and you're realizing a lot of the information you used to go to a formal classroom for, you can get on your phone. Or how about politics? <laughs> how many of you just hearing about the 2016 election, you rolled your eyes because of the freak show you know that we're about to go through, where politics becomes entertainment and sport, and there are all these different, and you just think, wow, the kind of person who actually could lead us well would never s subject themselves to this dehumanizing process. Business, geopolitical relationships, education, politics, what it means to have a career, a calling, how to be a parent, let alone spirituality. All across the board, lots of people are going through this disruptive experience in which the river is no longer a river and the mountain is no longer a mountain. Prayer, God, Jesus, gospel, Bible, salvation, spirit. Go down the list of words that people are saying, wait, what does that even mean anymore? So a couple thoughts about all this. First, if this is you, this is normal. Are you with me? This is normal. And at some degree, ongoing. If you're awake and alive and growing, a natural, normal, healthy process of evolution, awakening, maturing, and growth is that you will revisit things because you realize, I used to have a sense of what that means, but things have changed in me. Something within me has morphed, and now I'm asking, how am I going to think about that? This is normal and ongoing, so relax. If you just read a book and you feel like the rug was pulled out from underneath you, if you just took a trip and find yourself with this massive disequilibrium because you don't know if that means that or that means that. This is normal. This is an ongoing process. You're okay. Are you with me? Okay, number two. Whatever you do, don't be obnoxious. Can we all just agree now? Because what happens is for many people, they come out of a system and that system becomes oppressive. It's narrow. It's not big enough. It doesn't adequately help guide them. And so they come out of it and then they look back at the people that they were with who are still in it and they become quite obnoxious, let's be honest. And they go back and they say, how can you primitive barbaric people keep holding on to that? The truth is it still works for those people. It still works. The system is fine. For them, it still is like a giant comfort blanket. It still keeps them warm. And there's nothing enlightened about you ridiculing them. You may not understand it, you may think it's completely insane and how come they can't see what you can see, but you cannot rush someone else's journey. That's the mystery of consciousness. It's the thing Jesus talked about again and again. They hear, but they don't hear. They see, but they don't see. It's the great mystery. Why do two people have the same experience or are exposed to the same idea and the one says, oh my word, this changes everything and the other is completely unaffected. Also, while we're at it, 
I uh, <laughs> I met this lady recently and she's like, I don't understand why all these people that I am friends with don't understand. I don't understand why they can't grasp that love wins. I mean, love wins. It's obvious. And so I've bought them lots of cap copies of your book and I have got bought some of them. I have bought them your book over and over again and I shove it in their face and I say to them, how can you not acknowledge that love wins? How can you be stuck in those old ways? Don't you want to come along with me and see that love wins? <laughs> and I'm like laughing like, uh, okay, the one thing these people aren't going to be convinced of is that your love wins. Uh, it's easy in newfound excitement that you've been set free and you see things in a bigger, wider, more expansive ways. It's easy to become obnoxious about your newfound enlightenment because it's not actually enlightenment. And sometimes what happens, let's be honest here, is that somebody has grown you don't see it like you used to, and you're embarrassed that you once saw it that way. And you even find yourself thinking, I don't understand why those people are so backwards and narrow-minded and bigoted and shallow and whatever. But the truth is, you, you're trying to come to terms with your own story. I don't know why I was shallow and narrow and so backwards. So you just have to make peace with it. Forgive yourself. You used to think like that. Now you think like this. In the Hebrew tradition, when you would, uh, when, a, when a sliver of light would invade your life and you would see things in a new way, the last thing you'd be doing is beating yourself up for how the old way. You would celebrate that the divine revealed to you new truth to take you to a whole new place of greater freedom and love and grace. You wouldn't flog yourself or them for why they're stuck back there or why did I ever buy that line of nonsense. You would celebrate, oh, I'm so glad I'm where I'm at. Your response would be gratitude, not judgment. And then for those of you who find yourself in one of those seasons where the river is no longer a river and the mountain's no longer a mountain, my word to you is this, don't settle, keep going. Keep searching, keep looking, keep asking, keep questioning, keep going. A friend of mine just the other day was telling about uh, this beloved longtime friend of his who goes to church every Sunday. He sits with his wife, drives the minivan, loads up the kids, drives them home. He doesn't believe a bit of it. He just sits there. He has all these questions and doubts, and he has all of these things that he thinks are just completely crazy about the church that he goes to. And yet he just sits there. He just checked out. He essentially put, in some ways, his heart, his soul on the shelf. And he's just a shell, just going through the motions. If you are in that place, be honest. Just be honest. Drag it up. Be straightforward about it. Write it down on a piece of paper. Nothing good will come of stuffing it and repressing it. On what planet is authenticity a bad thing? I actually think this is really important because of the growing number of our friends and neighbors who are using the word atheist and calling themselves atheists. Do you know the power of atheism? Is when somebody says this, what they're essentially saying is, I refuse to go through the motions. By the way, uh, most of my friends who would call themselves atheists, when they talk about the God they don't believe in, I don't believe in that God either. So I don't even find the categories that helpful. But nevertheless, 
Oftentimes when somebody says, I cannot do that, and it appears as though they're walking away, they may be walking away from that, but they are walking into authenticity. They are saying, I will not live with a worldview that I haven't thought through and embraced with my whole heart. And that, my friends, is a good thing. That is a movement towards authenticity and genuine living. And I don't care who you are, you cheer that person on. So, parents, let's talk about you. Or more importantly, parents, let's talk about your kids. Often what happens is kids set out on a search. They walk away from the river that is a river and the mountain is that a mountain and the way that they were taught. And what happens often is the parents freak out. And the parents have all this anxiety and fear that their kid is walking off a cliff. Here's the deal, parents. Relax. When your kid sets out to search, your job is to cheer them on. Or maybe it's a friend of yours. Cheer them on. See, when somebody says, I want to make sense of this, whatever I hold, I want to hold it because I've chosen to hold it and I've thought it through and it's real and it's genuine. You're never an opponent of that. You cheer them on. Because see, when you have anxiety and fear, you are making the worst sales pitch ever for your worldview. <laughs> Do you realize this? When you respond with negativity and condemnation and fear and suspicion and how dare you read that book and how dare you go hear that person and I don't understand why you'd want to go explore that. You are teaching them a closed, narrow view of God's big, beautiful, heartbreaking, exotic, fascinating world. And you are giving them less and less reason to pursue or even to land at your worldview. Sometimes you have to leave. Sometimes you have to toss your understanding of the river and the mountain because you have to make it your own. Some people are naturally curious. Some people have been raised in an environment where the voices coming at them were so strong they were never given a chance to think for themselves. Your job is to cheer them on. Actually, I would take it a step further. If they're reading a book that's challenging them, read the book with them. If they want to go hear that perspective, go hear it with them. Join them. Join them and see what happens. Who knows what fascinating conversations you'll cut into, and you may even find yourself bonded in whole new ways. At first, the river is a river and the mountain's a mountain. Then the river is no longer a river and the mountain is no longer a mountain. And then later, the river is a river again and the mountain is a mountain again. That's what happens when you begin to find a new way of understanding something. And here's the really interesting twist. Sometimes you recover words that you tossed a long time ago because they had no meaning. But as you went into the heart of your own experience and you paid very careful attention to your own soul and spirit and life and vibrancy, you realize that actually that word is a pretty good word. So uh, let's take a couple words and uh, instead of business or education or politics, how about we talk about the spiritual realm? Let's take a bunch of words and rethink perhaps new ways of seeing them because they're words that a lot of people have tossed out because, man, that river's no longer a river and that mountain's no longer a mountain. First off, Bible. For many people, Bible was instructions on how God will be less angry with you or uh, 
the Bible is simply, apparently there's some message in there about how you can go somewhere when you die. And if that's the case, or if the Bible is just a, or you are told that it's perfect, but you read it and you're like perfect or inerrant aren't the right words for this book because it's way more human and messy and bloody and contradictory and paradoxical than that. And so you essentially say, whatever that is, I don't even know what you're talking about when you talk about the Bible. But perhaps on the other side, you rediscover it. Perhaps you rediscover the Bible as this ancient library of poems and letters and accounts and psalms, and they're written by all of these different people, and it's about love and lust and longing and loss and agony and euphoria and blood and soil and grace and forgiveness and heart and soul and inspiration. Are, we, are, are you with me now? It's this fascinating library, and at the heart of this library of books is this insistence that we live in a world that is electric with holiness, that it is a sacred place, that all ground is holy. And at the heart of this book is this insistence that we have not been abandoned, but there is a whole new world bursting forth right here in the middle of this one. It's a story about this Jesus who insists that there's a whole new creation. It's right here, right now. There's a realm of the divine around, among, upon, within you. And you can wake up to your true self, to who you are, and you can experience actual joy and peace and grace right here, right now. And so you stop defending it or answering your relevant questions about it because you understand it is a human story. And the divinity that you find in it comes because you went into the heart of the humanity of it. You went into all the messy, bloody, paradoxical, confusing things and you found out, wait, these people in many ways are a lot like me. And then you begin to see a spirit and a trajectory and an arc, that movement through this library of books. That in the beginning is, hey, could you not kill each other in the Ten Commandments, right? Don't kill. Could you guys not kill each other? But then later on you see greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their brother or sister. So you see a movement. It goes from could you not kill each other to could you love each other with the kind of passion, devotion, and commitment that you'd actually give your lives for another. And so you begin to see that there is something moving within it, expanding, enveloping, enfolding, moving beyond. And you see this story of love as it cascades across the ages. And suddenly this Bible is not an ancient book of irrelevant laws about what you're supposed to wear or sacrifice, but you realize that it is a collection of the deepest wisdom about what it means for God to move us in progress forward into whole new tomorrows. Are you with me now? Or take this word salvation. For many people, salvation was, oh yeah, salvation is how you're guaranteed that when you die, you go to some other place. So essentially then salvation is not about this life. And it is about a ticket, it is about a code or an oath or a superstition or a prayer. It's about just tell me what I got to do so that when I die, I can go to a place better than the other place. But, and so you leave that because you're like, that is not helpful. But then you recover it as the river becomes a river and the mountain becomes a mountain. And you realize that there are these things in your life that you need to be saved from. You find out that you have destructive habits and patterns, addictions. You, you find out that you flirt with a despair that crushes your soul. You find that worry and anxiety 
take up way more of your energy than, than you wish they did. And you start to realize salvation is when I'm at my weakest and I find a strength beyond myself. Salvation is when I hit the wall and in my powerlessness, I discover an energy and a power, a divine force way beyond me. The story of the cross is about how weak is the new strong. And so salvation becomes your awareness that there is extraordinary untapped power for the taking, for you to step into, to rescue you from everything you desperately want to be rescued from. This is, of course, the Jesus story, but you reclaim some of these words. And so you say, man, I need to get saved. And you don't mean I need an insurance policy so I won't burn when I die. You mean I am in desperate need of a divine hand rescuing me right here, right now. Yes. So what happens in the journey, if you keep going and you don't settle and you dig it all up and you pay very careful attention to your very real human experience of the world, is ever so gradually the river often becomes a river again and the mountain often becomes a mountain again. One last thought. Disruptions are all part of it. Those moments when it feels like the rug got pulled out from under you, those moments of vertigo, those moments of loneliness, when you look around and you realize the things you're thinking about, the ideas you're entertaining, that book that you just read, you realize that if you voice any of that to the people around you, they'll think you're crazy. And you do say something and they all are like, what happened to you? You used to be so normal and nailed down. Those moments when you're lonely because you're the only one in your town talking about these things. You're the only one in your family who just can't do the propaganda anymore. You're the only one in your workspace who finds it's all a little boring, but you've been lit up by this new thing you've stumbled upon and you just want more. It's like you're thirsty in the desert. These disruptions are all part of it. They're part of growth. They mean you're awake. They mean you're alive. They mean you're growing. They mean you're evolving. So every single one of you who feels alone, you feel like you're the only one thinking of these things. Remember, that's a gift. You're alive. You may be a, feel lonely right now. First off, you're not lonely. There are millions of us. You're not alone. There are lots and lots of us rethinking everything, but it also means you're alive, and that is to be celebrated, and I celebrate it with you because there is this beautiful thing that happens, not just when the river is no longer a river and the mountain's no longer a mountain, but when later the river is a river again and the mountain is a mountain again. All right. My good friends, that is Robcast number two. And now for a word of benediction, may you, my brothers and sisters, may you never settle. May you keep going with your eyes wide open. May you assume that around every corner is a new experience, new truth, new love, new joy. May you be reminded that you are not alone, that there are millions of us that we don't find some of these historic disruptions and changes and shifting tides and currents a source or a reason for fear, but we find it invigorating. It's a weird, beautiful new world, isn't it? And I, like you, am invigorated by all of the possibilities. May you be invigorated 
by just what this moment can bring. And may grace and peace be with you every step of the way.